This is an installation of the Ferris Center Events Podcast Series, brought to you by the Ferris Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Hello, my name is Sam Bollier, and I'm a graduate student here at the Fletcher School. I'm joined today by Rani Shatah to speak about his upcoming book, Tales of a Tour Guide, and more broadly about historical memory and politics in Lebanon. Rani Shatah is the son of Mohammed Shatah, Lebanon's former finance minister, who was assassinated in 2013. Glad you could join us, Rani, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sam. So you gave a talk last week here at the Ferris Center on Beirut's history and on your work as the first person to give walking tours of Beirut. And I wanted to explore further some of the issues you brought up. You made the point in your talk that uh, Berlin and Sarajevo are two cities that have successfully come to terms with their history. Why were these cities able to confront their ghosts? And why, why hasn't Beirut been able to do so yet? Well, I would say Berlin has done it far better than either Sarajevo or Beirut. And I think that, generally speaking, that's because there's been so much stability and so much... Uh, calm in Berlin since the fall of the Berlin Wall, that there has been enough time to actually reflect on all the things that happened from World War II up until 1989. And I think Berlin has had adequate time to actually, I wouldn't say turn it into a tourism project, but to allow anyone who wants to access that history, sort of navigate that history on their own and there's a lot of signs there's a lot of navigation tools you can follow the berlin wall where it once stood you can go to the old intelligence offices and see where people were interrogated it's accessible um and they've they've had now 27 28 years to do this uh sarajevo has not been as successful partially because i i would guess that just time timing it hasn't had enough time to actually heal some of those wounds in the Balkan conflict. And also because the Balkans have not been exactly 100% stable. And uh, But even with those constraints, you can now visit Sarajevo and you can see the old tunnel that was used underneath the airport runway. You see the rose petals on the street that indicate where people were shot at by snipers. And it's, it's, it's also accessible. You can navigate that history. Beirut doesn't have this. The history is inaccessible, and there's been so much instability since the end of the Civil War, which is roughly the same time that the Berlin Wall fell. So 27 years later, 28 years later, we're still struggling to restore some calm and stability. And with that, I think, has come a lot of uh, difficulty explaining a history that is not over yet. It is an ongoing issue. For that reason, I think I was one of the few, if not the only, person trying to engage that chapter of history, for tourists and for Lebanese. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the tour came from. It came from a, a portion of Lebanese history that had not been touched on adequately. And I ended the tour at 2005, so basically the beginning of this current phase of assassinations and, and current instability. Mm-hmm. Now, while you were giving your walking tours in Beirut, what uh, surprising things did you discover about how Beirutis viewed their city and its history? The one stop in the tour that I loved uh, going to was the old Jewish quarter of Beirut, Wadi Abu Zmir, which is in the heart of the city, 
just below the Prime Minister's Palace. I mean, it is prime real estate, and very few Lebanese know that that neighborhood is even there, or what the history is, or let alone that there is a synagogue in the middle of Beirut, a beautiful, restored synagogue, and Lebanese were always shocked to see it. So that was something I found quite, uh, it, it, was a, it was a good thing, that there was, I could actually show a snippet, a small chapter of Lebanon's history, which is not that old, Lebanese Jewish community, which left before the Civil War and early in the Civil War, and I could actually show them a part of their history I don't think they knew. Or if they knew about it, they were not sure where the synagogue was, if, alone, if there was a synagogue. So I thought that was great. Another stop was Martyr's Square, which you can walk by and not even know it's Martyr's Square. It's better referred to as either a parking lot or Virgin Megastore, <laughs> which is at the corner. Right. And Martyr's Square is so central to Lebanon's independence and current history. And I think many Lebanese on the tour either did not know or were sort of not given the right tools to learn from this chapter in our history. And I spent 45 minutes at Martyr's Square retelling all that has happened in that part of Beirut. So these two stops, and then there are many others as well. There's a Holiday Inn, which most people don't even know. It used to be a Holiday Inn, dead smack in the middle of the city. The largest building still standing in the city, war-torn, completely damaged. And people don't really know what that thing is or what it used to be. So I, I was bringing parts of Beirut's history back to life. And Lebanese that live in Beirut or live throughout the country or the diaspora returning to Lebanon always found these kinds of stops fascinating. What do you think is the best way to commemorate these kinds of buildings? Should they simply be left as they are, turned into museums, torn down? Well, if I was an urban planning dictator, I would keep the Holiday Inn as it is. I would not let anyone touch it. And I would have maybe boards at the bottom explaining the neutral events that happened there. And that's easy to do. Not the more sensitive subjects. It doesn't have to get even that deep into who fought who, which month and which year but a general understanding of what this hotel means in Lebanese history. I would do it that way. Now, given that I'm not an urban planning dictator, or I don't have any authority to do these things, I honestly don't think there's any genuine effort to commemorate these types of memorials within the city. The exception, the exception is, well, first of all, is the Martyr's Square statue, which has been kept standing, despite it being damaged. It is still there. And there's another building called Beit Beirut, that is at the southern tip of the city, it's Sodico Square. That is a Civil War museum that has not opened yet. I think it's been a project now for maybe 15 years. So that is the other example. You had said at the talk last week that a lot of people are not able to reflect on the war and that too many Lebanese have the sense of it's easier to not talk about it and it's easier to just forget. What do you think happens if people do forget in the long term? What are the consequences if people don't talk about history, and especially the more traumatic or controversial parts of history? Well, the effect is modern-day Lebanese uh, affairs. That's the <laughs> effect, where you have a country that cannot stand on its own two feet, a country that doesn't have proper sovereignty, a people that are unable to agree on most of the foundations of the country, uh, repetition of violence, continued instability, occasional flare-ups of fighting, and you have a degradation of many things, one of, one of which is memory. I think a collective memory has turned into collective amnesia. 
mm-hmm. or maybe perhaps even a step further now, it's collective trauma, that there's almost a, an inability now to actually remember things that, uh, that happened not too long ago. And that part of the reason is that there have been so many rounds of conflict and so many wars since the Civil War. You have kids on the street that are sort of uh, saying things that are outrageous, like, which means, do you remember during the war? And the reply would be, meaning, which war? Mm-hmm. And these are children that have several wars to remember. I remember two summers ago, the uh, You Stink movement against the garbage situation in Lebanon. It felt yes. like this brief moment in which sort of all elements of society were uniting against what they saw as a corrupt and rotten system. I was wondering if you think there are any causes or issues today that might have that kind of unifying potential in Lebanon in the near future. So I always uh, get into maybe uh, squabbles with optimists, and maybe I'm not the I'm not the most optimistic when it comes to civil society in Lebanon. I don't think they are able to really overcome the structural problems of the country. There have been several attempts since the civil war ended. One of them is this Ustink movement, which was, I mean, it became toxic to actually live in Beirut. Prior to that, there was the March 14, 2005 movement in its inception, which was more about accountability than anything else, and preventing political assassinations and restoring order to a country that was under occupation. So there, there have been moments where Lebanese have united, but taking that union and then elevating it into something bigger, whether it's a political platform like the Medinati Beirut attempt or the more recent Sabah movement or any civil society movement. Post Samir Asir in 2005, there were other groups as well. There's Ernet Shahwain, which was pre-2005. There are many, many attempts at trying. The structural problems of the country guarantee that you're going to get sucked into geopolitical problems. And the moment that happens, I think all these attempts are dwindled or they're decimated through assassinations or other means. So there's, I think, not enough breathing space for these kinds of groups to operate. So nothing's going to change until the underlying structure changes. As a, as a skeptic and a pessimist and someone who actually left the country because these things became very uh, personal, they became almost, they became part of my, my own life. I don't see a way for Lebanon to move forward in its current state. It's impossible for me to imagine the next few years bringing in better days for Lebanese society. It's hard for me to see it. I, I said uh, in 2014, I was interviewed about this very same question. And I said, give Lebanon maybe 50 years and it might get things right. And I was, I was trying to be optimistic. I'd like to ask you about your book you've recently written. How did you decide to write the book and what were the most challenging parts about writing it? Well, the decision came once I could not do my walking tour anymore, and that was the end of 2013. And I spent years trying very, very hard, trying to give Beirut a decent image, projecting a decent image, despite all the chaos, all the wounds, that there are chapters of Lebanese history where we got it right. And we may get it right down the road. And focusing in on the good and the bad. And I, I really gave people a roller coaster journey into our history. When I stopped doing the tour, the reason I stopped, of course, is because of my father's assassination. And I, I wanted to tell his story the way I used to tell Beirut's story. So Tales of a Tour Guide is really about two stories at once. It's Beirut's legacy, it's modern history, and it's also the assassination and the assassination's aftermath. 
and I actually bring the two stories together right in the middle of the book. So I am actually unlayering the city's history the way I used to did the way I used to do on the tour. I'm also unlayering my own recent history through my father's assassination. Mm-hmm. And was it difficult and, to bring those two strands together? It was difficult only in that I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, where there's not there's no hint of Middle East conflict. <laughs> so I actually I had proper space maybe to do two things: to reflect without any distraction, and also to try and come to terms with a personal tragedy. The emotions that came out were challenging, but having done this in a place that is rather remote when it comes to Middle East war, I was I think I, I was able to engage an audience that wouldn't necessarily be pulled into a story about Beirut. I think I kept the stories universal enough so that you could be from any city, any country, and you'd find a part of the story that resonates. And I... Um, I think being detached enough helped that I was able to access an audience that doesn't follow Middle East politics. And one last question. When does the book come out? Uh, that's a good question. I hope in the next, within the next year, okay. I hope. The, the draft is done, the manuscript is done, negotiations have begun. Great. Uh, but I, I hope within the next year it'll be out. By 2018, there will be copies available. Rani Shatah, thank you so much for joining us and very much looking forward to reading your book when it comes out. Thank you, Sam.